Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambodasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambodasa Namo tassa bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambodasa Bodang Hamang Sangang Namasami Ajahn Aryasilo asked me to give a talk a couple hours ago. And uh, part of the part of the training here is to I mean, at least the Ajahn Cha tradition is to be ready to uh, yeah, ready to give a talk whenever it happens to come up. And yeah. At least at a Bayagiri it's considered where I so yeah, I come from it's yeah I don't know I haven't I haven't often heard people decline requests for Dhamma you know when the Ajahn asks you to give a Dhamma talk Lomparpath you know is weighty so for people so yeah I've for people who don't know uh, my name is uh, Ajahn Kachana I came here from Abhayagiri Monastery I arrived June 5th here at Amaravati. Uh, yeah, I've had a, so I've been here about two months. I've gotten to know the bhikkhu community pretty well, but everybody else, uh, not really. The, yeah, there's, so, yeah, I thought it would, just, I guess, introduce myself a bit more. Um, I, yeah, I ordained at a Bayagiri. Uh, I came to a Bayagiri monastery in uh, California um, with the intent of pursuing Anagarika training in uh, in 2006. Um, and that was, at that time, Ajahn Amaro was, you know, that was when, during the period of the co-abbotship. And actually, when I arrived in 2006, Ajahn Amaro was the only abbot at Abhayagiri because Lumpurpasano was on a year-long sabbatical meditating in a cave in Thailand. And so I spent four years with, um, with Ajahn Amaro between 2006 and 2010 when he came here at the invitation of Lumpur Sumedho. Um, I remember being, uh, I think it was just at the beginning of the, uh, just at the beginning of the winter retreat in 2010, if I can remember right, when it was announced that Ajahn Amaro, you know, well, actually it wasn't announced. He asked our permission 
he said, I, you know, Lumpur Sumedho has asked me to go to Amaravati. Is that okay with the Sangha? And he said, yes. And I think we were all disappointed to lose him. There's, there's a saying in Thailand that two tigers don't live in the same cave. And it's very uncommon to have uh, two abbots you know, who are, yeah, strong and weighty at the, in the same, running the same monastery. So what had happened at Abayagiri between 1996 and 2010 was a bit unprecedented. Um, and, I mean, either after it got rolling, either Lumpur Pasano or Ajahn Amaro could have run a Bayagiri on their own. So we were extraordinarily fortunate to have two of them. And they, I can remember, we heard from them that I think they had only one fight when they were abbots together. What I guess I heard is that um, the story we heard was that uh, both of them came back quite late from, I don't know if it was a teaching engagement or you know an airplane flight into San Francisco and then a trip up to Abayagiri, but they got in late. And I think one of them, one of them wanted to go to his kuti immediately, and the other one of them wanted to stay in the abbot's office to take a shower. And so they got a bit upset with each other because one wanted to go up right away. This was apparently the extent of the conflict between our abbots. <laughs> they got along really well. Um, they weren't... They certainly weren't always the same. Um, there was, it was well known they had different opinions about some things. But one of, one of their practices was if one of them, if one of the two abbots said something, the other, the other abbot would always back him up, even if he disagreed. So, um, Wiley, you know, sort of, Junior monks who thought that happiness and that happiness depended on getting what they want would learn which abbot to ask what in order to get what they wanted. Sometimes it backfired though, because you if you asked the wrong one, it was um it was I mean Ajahn Amaro, for instance, likes to likes us to untie our bowl strings every time we take out our, our bowl out of the bowl bag. Lumpur Pasano, um, different, you know, he, um, he does not untie his bolstrings. And so someone had, if again, if you consider it, someone who was wanting not to untie the bolstrings asked during a Vinaya class about those bolstrings, but only Ajahn Amaro was there. He said, well, untie your bolstrings. And so until Ajahn Amaro left, we were all untying our bowl strings every time, except for Lumpur Pasano's Upatak, who didn't untie Lumpur Pasano's bowl. So that was, yeah, again, if you believe that happiness is getting what you want, um, not sure that's the case, but we'll talk about that later. 
Um, another just a memory of the two of them as co-abbots was every morning um, they would arrive at the um, Abayagiri Dhamma Hall walking out of the abbot's office exactly at 5 a.m. I mean, it was, I think it was, you know, more or less plus or minus 60 seconds every time. They were, they were sharp and punctual. Longporpasana would always be ahead, Ajahn Amaro a few steps behind. Um, there's, there, um, you know, they sat side by side in the front. Their sitting cloths and sangatis would be already prepared by their upataks. So they would, um, they would go and bow in unison together. But it wasn't quite in unison because, if I remember correctly, Lumpur Pasano, so they would get to their seats, Lumpur Pasano would bow without his sangati on. Ajahn Amaro, while Lumpur Pasano was bowing the first time, would put his sangati on. The second and third bows were synchronized. You know, Ajahn Pasano with no sangati, sorry, and Ajahn Amaro with a sangati. And then during, um, during Ajahn Amaro's third bow, um, Ajahn Pasano would put his sangati on. So they finished bowing at exactly the same time. This happened consistency, consistently like clockwork, morning and evening puja. And, you know, I don't know what they thought about it, but, and I didn't even notice it much until I started reflecting on it, mostly after Rajanamaru left. But it was an excellent symbol of how they worked together without having to be identical. Um, right. Just to note, just to notice that, and so that's those are some of my some of my recollections from Ajahn Amaro's time at Abayagiri. Ajahn Amaro was actually incident, um, instrumental in when I in my uh, first inclinations to to becoming a monk. I arrived in the Bay Area in fall of 1999 um, in order to uh, study um, physics in the graduate school at um, UC Berkeley. And I, at that point, I was already quite interested in, I was already, I'd already been meditating for quite a while, and you know, I guess seven years or so. Um, and then doing a vipassana meditation for oh, about eight or nine months. My parents had introduced it to me earlier on. And so I knew I knew I was looking, you know, so I I immediately plugged into the uh Buddhist scene at um in Berkeley. I know Lumpur Sumedho speaks about his about his years in Berkeley. He could not find any Buddhist groups in Berkeley when he was there in the 50s. By the early 2000s, I think there were half a dozen Buddhist centers. These are buildings within walking distance of the UC Berkeley campus. It was a totally different environment. 
and you could practice almost any form of Buddhism you wanted with someone. And I can remember I ended up uh, going to a young adult day-long at Spirit Rock Meditation Center. And, you know, I was a young adult at the time, so it seemed like a good, good, first, um, good first retreat at Spirit Rock. And just coincidentally, Ajahn Amaro happened to be teaching it. And his topic was renunciation. And I can remember him sitting there in, you know, it was a basically a portable, two portable um, buildings kind of merged together. It was the um, lower, uh, the uh, lower community center at Spirit Rock at the time. They've knocked it down and built a much nicer one now. But you know, there he was sitting on the asana, and he was talking about renunciation and just grinning ear to ear. I mean, it was, wow, this guy, he is happy. And he's, and he's describing how he's, you know, how he, how there have been times when he's been very happy and without much material support for that happiness. And my impression was, wow, this is, this is the real thing. I'd been interested, you know, I'd, I'd studied the life of Gandhi. I was very interested, but I hadn't, I hadn't met anyone that close who was actually practicing like that. And, you know, the idea of not handling money. Was like, wow, he's, he's doing that. And he is glowing. I, you know, I'm going to follow up on this. And so I, you know, I, I did. I went to a Bayagiri um, that day long. Yeah, a couple, some months after that day long. And it took, you know, I, for a variety of reasons, I ended up, you know, I, at some points during my PhD, um, you know, during my graduate school career, I contemplated, um, why don't I just drop this and go to, and you know, and just go to a Bayagiri? They don't, they don't care if you have any degree, you know, you don't, you don't need any, you know. It's, um, but you know, for various reasons, I ended up sticking with the program and completing it. So it was a, you know, yeah, fall, uh, summer of 2006 before I came to a Bayagiri to explore the possibility of ordination. Um, yeah, and I think it's just reflecting on, yeah, reflecting on that. I guess, yeah, I'm just from there I spent, um, yeah, so I took full ordination in 2008, and then my third year I spent in, in Thailand, um, Wat Panlanachat, Pujamgam, and Daodam, and then, yeah, very good experience there. I returned to Thai, I returned to Abayagiri in 2000, summer of 2012. And shortly after returning, I, you know, I, I injured my knee pretty badly. And so I have basically not been able to sit on the floor for very long at all since then. And I had a very good experience with Tha in Thailand, but um, it's, what shall we say, in Thailand it's very important that you always want to be lower than the, than the senior monks. And so if you sit on a chair, it's at a Thai monastery, it looks very strange. And, you know, there's this, and so I realized it'd be 
it'd be difficult to go back to Thailand with not being able to sit on the floor. And so that was that was the reason why you know why I didn't head back after after some years. Also, you know, just getting you know, a physical therapy treatment in um, uh, in Redwood Valley or you know the near in Ukiah, the nearest town to Abayakiri. That really helped. Uh, but I can walk quite well now, but I still can't sit on the floor. And then it was, you know, it was, after a while I started to realize that I was actually, you know, I was quite contented to buy a Gary, but I was getting sort of content to the point of um, losing mindfulness. You know, I found that I was just, I was doing the same routine and I wasn't paying, I wasn't paying attention anymore. It wasn't, it was a very good routine, but the attention, the attention wasn't there. You know, I just, and so I'd been at Abayagiri for, at that point, something like six years. And so I thought, and so I talked to Lomparpasano. Uh, I said, uh, you know, it, I've been here a long time, and it seems that I'm really good here, but I'm not, if I, you know, I find that I, I'm not habitually mindful if I, you know, and, Basically, it's the same. Doing the same thing all the time seems to, uh, yeah. I'm not paying the kind of attention I think would be useful for my dharma practice. Maybe if I, you know, if I think if I went to a different place, then maybe I'd be able to. Uh, maybe I'd have. Well, I'd have to learn a lot of new things, and it just is totally essential to pay attention if you go to a new place. So he said, "Well, why don't you go to Amaravati?" So we contacted. Anjanamo, and that's why I yeah, came here. And I must say, it's been, yeah, yeah, I've had to pay attention, and it, it has helped my Dhamma practice. And I've gotten to know a very, yeah, a very good community of bhikkhus. So that's, that's sort of, yeah, how I got here. And I thought I would, I thought I would, uh, yeah, it's the topic of the topic of happiness has come up a couple of times in talks that have been given recently, and it was certainly, you know, it was certainly Ajahn Amaro's, um, you know evident happiness, which is why which is why I thought that what he was doing was worth follow, was worth investigating. Um, you know, like like most Westerners, my Initial introductions to um, to uh, Buddhism had nothing to do with um, with monks or nuns. It was my, you know, listening to talks by Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein, and even and yeah, I can remember on my on my first longer retreat. I can remember. You know, I was because of my experience with Ajahnamuro, I had, you know, I asked about, well, how does how does one become a monk? And they actually didn't really know, but they said, well, we don't know, but we know about Abhayagiri. Go up there. So, it was really, it was really, I mean, it was the fact that Ajahnamuro was, yeah, glowingly happy, which is 
yeah, the reason why I ended up choosing this path. And if one, now you had already been thought, you know, thought about the notion, the notion of happiness, and the reason why. What you're, what you're looking, you know, I was, I, for year, years back, I had formulated that I was really looking for a uh, reliable happiness. And the reason why renunciation is important is because if you have a, if you're looking for reliable happiness and your happiness depends on things that change, it's not reliable. And if your happiness depends on things that other people want, then if those things are limited, that will put you in, that will put you in conflict with other people which is a um, unpleasant situation to be in. So we had a couple ordinations recently, and you know, the um, monks and nuns are, you know, in our ordination, were taught to be content with, um, yeah, with, uh, with rag robes, scraps of alms food, you know, the root of a tree for a dwelling, and fermented urine is medicine. And the idea is these are, these are things that other people don't want. You know, they don't, um, it doesn't take up much space. You know, you're not, these things do not put you in conflict with other people. And so, if you can learn to be content with the, you know, with those things, with, um, those uh, with that standard of requisites, then you know everything else is um, everything else is a bonus on top of that, and one's happiness is much more secure. Now, you know I must say that I've yeah I mean that's that's that really is quite a you know quite a tall order, and um, also at least. Right now, in Western and Thai monasteries, you know we're so we're so well supported that we rarely get to that you know rarely get to that level of austerity, and that's that's totally acceptable, totally fine. But what isn't fine is the uh, the fact that yeah, there's still clinging in the heart as long as we're as long as our happiness depends on things that change, um, even, even if they're not changing right now, there is an intrinsic uneasiness, and we can feel it. So this is the, yeah, this is, this is the, uh, this is the path, this is our practice. You know, it's, Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes one, you know, one, you know, one thinks that maybe happiness, you know, isn't maybe happiness isn't the goal, you know, and in a way, it's not. Um, I think there is a. I mean, I would say, yeah, happiness is not a ultimate end in itself. Um, Ruth, I can. Ruth Denison, when you know when she 
and it was when she was uh, towards the end of her life. Uh, I, I don't. She requested. I think it was her request or her caretaker's request that Lumpur Pasano come to visit, and so Lumpur and one other monk and two and uh, two lay women went to uh, went to visit Ruth Denison, and Ruth was you know her. They, you know her conver you know her conversation was apparent you know not not always totally you know not always totally coherent but from what their report was Milan said that she repeatedly emphasized that the goal of a practice is not happiness it's freedom and she thought that was very important to say and yeah, I think it's important to uh, reflect on that. But it's also important to notice that if we try to deny ourselves happiness, you know, if we think, well, you know, have, ha if we have an ideal of equanimity, we're supposed to be okay. One thing, you know, with being sort of, you know, we'll miserable or less than completely happy. What happens is, is that we don't, at least for me, I sure notice that not, I don't, I can go, I can go about, you know, I can convince myself about that 80%, but then the 20% that isn't convinced, when it's got the upper hand, it'll go sneak off and find some kind of happiness, you know, and sometimes it does things that aren't skillful. And then all of us, all of me has to deal with the results of that unskillfulness. So I'd be, you know, at least myself, I'm cautious about saying, you know, about belittling happiness because, yeah, it's, um, it's important. You know, a, uh, deeply happy monks do not disrobe. I mean, that's, you know, ones that are, you know, sort of, yeah, agitated, um, distressed, sometimes do. So it's, the Buddha's teachings are, um, it's a teaching of causality, learning learning the causes for, you know, for actually pretty much everything. You know, all of our, what, what we experience, you know, has, arises from causes and conditions. And if we understand those causes and conditions, we can then work to put causes and conditions for happiness into place and remove the causes and conditions for misery. If we don't understand, then, then we don't have a guide, then something else will guide our actions. And it may not take us to such a good place. And so I would, yeah, it's, it's a very useful thing to do to contemplate 
for oneself. What what are the what are the causes for a what are the causes for a reliable happiness? When we these are and so many of the Buddha's teachings um, describe these. And it's important to learn how to how to implement these teachings in your own life so they actually do bring about the sort of happiness that um, that's described. So I mean it certainly the the beginning is just the happiness of generosity. Because you know the happiness of consumption depends on having you know depends on having things and uh, and consuming them and the happiness of consumption unfortunately if you've well what one notices is that if one when one consumes things one often needs to consume more and more of them to experience the same level of happiness this is really obvious with um you know with uh, things like um you know, um, illegal drugs and these sorts of things. But the same principle holds true for wealth. You know, people, it seems that everybody, or many people, seem to want more wealth than they have. And at least in today's world, it seems, I, you know, I don't know how many billions of dollars the um, or pounds the most, the wealthiest person in the world has, but it's a lot and you know there's still and if they had stopped desiring wealth at some point you know well it doesn't seem that that happened and i mean the buddha himself contemplated that um you know even two mountains of gold the size of the himalayas would not be enough to satisfy the greed of one single person uh, he used that as a rebuke to Mara, who was trying to get him to uh, go back to his kingdom and uh, take up the throne. So the happiness of consumption is unreliable. But the happiness of generosity, learning that, okay, I, you know, where, where I have more than I need, I can give that away. And if I find a and if I find a good place, a place where it'll be well used, uh, well looked, you know, well used, well looked after, um, you know, then what I have extra of, I can give that to others, and then delight in the happiness that that gives them. That's that's you know that, that's beginning. Yeah, that, that empathetic joy, mudita, is. Um, and something to really learn how to cultivate. You know, I can. I can remember my own. When I was a graduate student, you know, I didn't have. You know, I had a graduate student salary, which is not all that much. But I also didn't. I also didn't have a whole lot of desires. So I was, towards the end of my graduate school career, I was, you know. Able to, you know, I had I had the opportunity to uh, 
Yeah, give to uh, Dhamma centers, to charities, to all sorts of things. And I can remember, you know, I, I kept track of my finances in one of those personal finance programs. And I can remember I would open it up and plot the graphs and feel inspired. Wow. You know, this is, you look at, I mean, yeah, most of my money was going to rent, but that's just the Bay Area. Uh, you look at that, and it was, I was, I was happy with how I was allocating my money. It was in line with my values. And you know, that was, that felt really good. I wasn't allocating my time in, you know, the way, you know, in accordance with my values, which is one of the reasons why I came to the monastery. But I can remember that. And it's like, okay, that's, that's learning there. And of course, we give so much more than just our, you know, now, now I don't have any money to give. But I know what, what we can give is, yeah, it takes, you know, so for instance, in the monk's life, it's a cooperative work to uh, keep that bhikkhu vihara uh, neat and tidy. And so, you know, it often happens that, you know, someone doesn't, to you know, doesn't totally clean up after themselves in the, you know, in the common room or in one of the, uh, you know, one of the other rooms. And, you know, you come in and something's not right. And one, one response is to become grumpy and think, well, what kind of mindful monk did that? Um, you know, I don't know who did it, but I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not so sure about these people I'm living with. You know, that's, you feel what that does to the heart. And, mm, that's not, that's not happiness. Or, you know, an alternative is to just go ahead and, cl you know, clean it up and regard it, you know, regard it as a gift to whoever comes in the room next because they'll have, you know, they'll see a clean, tidy room. And the other thing is, is yeah, just to, um, I can remember there was a, uh, I once visited a friend of mine who lives in, who is uh, working on a sort of, yeah, um, visionary communities of a very different sort. Um, I won't go into the full details, but one of the things that happened, one of the ways they did their communal chores was that Every week, everybody in the community would, to get, would get together and um, talk about, well, today, you know, this week I, you know, this week I did, you know, this and this, you know, I fixed the window and, um, you know, uh, fixed the window, pounded in that door frame, took out the trash, whatever. They would all go around and describe. And I thought that was, I thought that was pretty skillful because they got to, they all, you know, they, you know, they all got to recognize that, yeah, we're contributing this to, this to this together. But, you know, that it does kind of, you know, that does kind of stoke the ego a bit. Um, one can compete at having, you know, who helps the most, or think, oh, you know, I don't know, I don't know how to fix things, so I never get, you know, so I never say much at this meeting. Um, and, you know, it's, and, you know, they, they weren't aiming at, um, of course, this community, they weren't aiming at um, you know, awakening, abandoning ego. And it's actually the most skillful thing to do is to clean up the mess in such a way that nobody actually knows who did it. And then, yeah, it's just, 
And, you know, if you have a couple people like that in the Bhikkhu Vihara, the Bhikkhu Vihara stays pretty clean. If you have a lot of people like that in the Bhikkhu Vihara, it stays really clean. And so that's, that's an act of generosity right there. And again, it's so important to be, learn how to feel that as generosity in the heart. And so, you know, there's this, this is where we, there's a, you know, there's this concept of merit, punya, uh, punya boon in Thai. And it's something Westerners don't intrinsically understand. And um, many Thai people have grown up with it. And so if you see something that's out of place, you can learn, ah, you know, this is, this is, this is, pun, you know, this is just punya waiting to happen right there. So instead of, instead of even thinking about it as a problem, you know, wow, this is, this is an opportunity to contribute. And you can watch that, feel that attitude in the heart. That's bright. And then, and certainly, you know, the next, the next step is keeping precepts, you know, which is, and I, yeah, and this, this is something that, you know, everyone took the eight precepts, you know, the lay people took the eight precepts tonight, the, uh, the uh, monks and nuns took our, pre, recited our precepts earlier in the day, and this is this is something to really really delight in. These these precepts are yeah for for our benefit. And in in the Vinaya class, you know we we read um, we read from the um, Majjhimakaya twenty seven, the shorter discourse on the elephant's footprint, and. That contains a condensed version of the sort of yeah the bhikkhu's training. It's not you know it's not detailed like the vinaya itself, but it's a very it's a very good broad brush um, explanation of it all. And after and after undertaking it, so after undertaking the uh, the ten precepts, which after yeah following the ten precepts, which form the basis for all of the uh, monks tra- and nuns training, and then take it, taking on the extra observances of, you know, uh, yeah, livelihood, uh, you know, how we, how, uh, being, con- being, and then, yeah, being content with alms food and one's robes. Uh, and then it's said in that sutta that, um, you know, the monk, one is content with all, with, Robes to protect the body and alms food to maintain the stomach. You know, just as a bird flies with its wings as its only burden, so too a monastic becomes content with robes to protect the body and alms food to maintain the stomach. And a monastic who a monastic who cultivates that um, those precepts and that contentment experiences a bliss within him or her, a bliss that is blameless. One, one is place, you know, one is living a human life, placing minimal burdens on the world. If one reflects on this, yeah, it 
brightens the heart. And then further, added, you know, when, when restraint of the senses is added further, you know, on seeing a form with the eye, one does not grasp at its signs and features, since if one left the eye faculty unguarded, evil, unskillful states of covetousness and grief might invade one. So one, practice, one practices, so one practices the way of its restraint, undertakes the restraint of the eye faculty and guards the eye faculty. Similarly for the, similarly for hearing, smelling, tasting, uh, touching, and most, and very importantly, thinking. One undertakes the restraint of the mind faculty. Um, you know, that, that's a sense base too. And adding that on, one experiences a bliss within oneself that is unsullied. So one, one, yeah, learning how to, ordinarily we go looking for, you know, for happiness in sights, sounds, tastes, etc. Ideas, I'm, I love ideas. And I, yeah, get dragged around by my mind all the time. But abandoning that, restraining that, yeah, there's a there's a well-being that comes from that, you know. And as as monastics, can we learn that? Can we actually feel that for ourselves? You know, it's not. It's a it's a craft rather than a, you know, it's something you have to uh, learn by learn by trial and error. You know, it's not like I can tell you this is how to find that bliss. I can't, you know. So. Yeah, and and then of course, yeah, meditation is also a place to uh, can also lead to great happiness. Um, for myself, I've found um, yeah, I found um, meta practice, the uh, meditation on goodwill, to be very useful here. I think as Westerners, we tend to be quite critical of ourselves, quite critical of other people. Um, our, our educational system really teaches us to, yeah, to find fault with things. We're, you know, we go through grade after grade, and last year, you know, what was good last year isn't good enough this year. You know, you have to keep, have to keep improving, improving, improving. And, you know, and it, and in the, you know, our economics is such that, yeah, that if someone else is better than you at something, well, you can't, you'll have to find some other way to make money. Um, that's and so there's very there's very much this yeah this this breeds this breeds um criticism and self criticism criticism of others discontent um it's just something we it's just something we live with i mean I think it's gonna be useful to contrast that with the uh subsistence rice farmers who were the uh, majority of um 
Wang Pu Man and Ajahn Chah's early students. There, okay, you've got your land, and you know you need to learn how to work your land well enough to, you know, to get your rice crop. You don't. It's unreliable. You don't know if it'll work. Um, the weather could be bad, and then you go hungry. Um, but on the other hand, you're, you know, you're not. You don't have to do better than than the skills it takes to uh, you know get a good rice crop and um, harvest what you need out of the forest. And furthermore, I mean, your neighbors aren't your competitors; they're your they're your friends. They'll help you out um, if you run into trouble. And you've known them since you were born. And there's a, often quite a degree of trust. So this is, this is a very different society. And so it may be the case that sometimes, you know, we may need some bit, you know, different approaches in some areas of the practice to compensate for the fact that, yeah, um, Western society, not the same. So for myself, you know, even though Lumpur Cha didn't emphasize it, I've found metta practice to be very helpful. And, you know, one... Lumpur Pasano has written, a, well, he gave a retreat on uh, metta practice in 2008, and that's been made into the book, um, Abundant, Exalted, Immeasurable. And I'm pretty sure we have free distribution copies for that at, at Amravati right now. And, yeah, I think people are probably, many people are probably familiar with the, uh, with the method of reciting, you know, mentally reciting phrases to oneself. Um, you know, for, somehow I've, I've always, I've always liked the uh, ones in the chanting book. May I abide in well-being. May I abide in freedom from hostility. May I abide in freedom from ill will. And may I may may I ab- yeah may I abide in well-being may I abide in freedom from hostility may I abide in freedom from ill will may I abide in freedom from anxiety and may I maintain well-being in myself you know those are those are very simple um, and again it's it's not that there's a best set of phrases by any means. But you find, you know, one finds what works for one. Um, yeah, it's um, one of the things that one recognizes. Looking at those phrases, is that yeah, metta practice is not selfish at all. You know, wishing, may I abide in freedom from ill will. Okay, may I abide in freedom from ill will? Well, if I'm abiding in, you know, you think, that is not a selfish thing at all. If I'm abiding in, well, if I'm abiding in ill will, you don't want to be around me. It's not pleasant. So it's a gift to everyone around me to, yeah, abide in, abide in goodwill. Abide in freedom from hostility. 
Abide in freedom from anxiety. That's a big one for me. I can be anxious about so much. You know, can one abide in freedom from that? And Lumpurpasano, in his, in his, uh, in abundant, exalted, immeasurable, talks about this. Um, he calls it the metanimita. I'm not sure. He may be he may be referencing uh, the uh, commentarial works. I'm not sure because I haven't read I haven't read much of the commentarial tradition. But when practicing when practicing metta, one's looking you know one's looking for. I mean, you use the phrases, but one's looking for a response from the heart. You know, it, it's something you you know. Warmth, you know, a sense of warmth, lightness, brightness, and when you you know when you learn how to find that, um, you can use you know you use that as a guide for the phrases, and then you can start to let go of the phrases, because that sense of well-being, you know, that sense of wishing oneself well, wishing others well, it's that. That sense in the heart. That's what's. That that's that's what's. Uh, that's the goal. Much more than the phrases. Much more than the thoughts. And you know. And this is this is deep happiness. You know, you know, yeah. And one can one can even take it further. You know, as one starts to, you know, letting letting the whole concept of, you know, being start to drop away, just goodwill for whatever the experience is right now, recognizing that, you know, self self and world are constructions, you know, and then there's but they're, you know, sort of constructions out of whatever the experience is right now, so without having to label it as self or other, just goodwill for this and not in words but you know learn how the heart feels for that backing up a little bit um, one thing that I've also in terms of beginning metta practice I've the uh, commentaries and then uh, Sharon Salzberg's work writing uh, her book called loving kindness recommend beginning loving kindness with the practice of forgiveness and this is really helpful if you're upset with yourself or someone else because it it can clear the op, you know this it can clear the obstacles so what one can do is you know one the the phrases that Sharon Salzberg recommends and I used myself are if I, if I have harmed anyone, knowingly or unknowingly, intentionally or unintentionally, I ask their forgiveness and forgive myself to the extent that I am able. If anyone has harmed me, knowingly or unknowingly, um, intentionally or unintentionally, I forgive them to the extent that I am able. If I have harmed myself, knowingly or unknowingly, 
intentionally or unintentionally, I forgive myself to the extent that I am able. And a couple of things. I mean, I, it's, it's very important to recognize that we can't order ourselves to forgive. We invite. And it may take a lot of inviting, you know, and that's okay. You know, that's just, it, it can't be forced. That sense of, yeah, recognizing that, yes, harm was done, but if we, um, if we, if we main, if we maintain ill will or hostility because of that harm, well, that's just not useful. It takes a while for the heart to realize that and can let go. Also, at least for myself, so often that third one is the most important because when one when one really starts paying attention to one's actions of body, speech, and mind, one realizes how much harm one causes to oneself. You know, so many times, you know, one, yeah, one thinks or acts or says things that are just not, not as skillful as they could be, and we experience the, the consequences. You know, it's like, well, if I, you know, yeah, if I hadn't, if I hadn't, wait, you know, if I hadn't um, sort of absorbed into a book, you know, for four hours straight, you know, then my mind would not be sort of buzzing and confused. I might be able to set, settle down in this meditation. And of course, it's, you know, it gets, and oftentimes we end up doing, you know, things that are far more unskillful than that. So forgiving ourselves is really important because it's only, it's only when we can settle down here and be okay with what's present right now that the mind can settle. And, you know, I've found it, found it useful, you know, to, uh, we wish, you know, we have goodwill to other people, even if they're not, you know, even if not, even if they're not always the people that, you know, that we would like them to be. And it's important to have goodwill to, you know, all the aspects of ourselves, even if we really wish they were different. I mean, even if, yeah, we know full well that, well, if this was different, things would be better. But right now it's here. With aspects of ourselves, you know, it's with habits and things, it's possible for those to drop away. It's not like other people where they, you know, where they have lives of their own. You know, it's not that we're fixed individuals, but sometimes things are, sometimes, yeah, karma uh, is really strong. We have strong tendencies and, well, okay, goodwill to the parts of myself I, for myself I don't like. You know, can I do that? And again, yeah, the heart can, the heart can brighten. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just there is um coming coming to the end here, and in terms of how far the uh, 
that aspiration for happiness can take one. Um, Lung Pu Man didn't write much at all, but one of the few thing, one of the few existent pieces of his writing that we have is called the uh, what the Ballad of Liberation for the Five Khandas is one is one translation of the title, and I think there's I think there's at least four translations of this um, of this uh, short uh, work, and I think it might it might be a poem in Thai, but um, there's no way you can translate into poetry in English. At least no one I can't remember anyone trying. But the very beginning um, is a yeah. Just the very the beginning goes like this, if I can remember. There was once a man who loved himself, and whose thoughts were fearful of suffering. Wanting happiness and freedom from fear and danger, he wandered about. His character was such that he loved himself and was very afraid of death, and he truly wanted to get free from old age and death. But he wandered about for a long time. Then one day he came to know the truth and abandoned Samudhiya, the cause of suffering, and all the many sankharas. And he came to a cave of joy where Sukha, a word for happiness, where Sukha did not disappear, and the cave was like onto his physical body. And I imagine, although this is, these statements are written as a description of a fictional character, I imagine that they're um, probably autobiographical of uh, Lampuman. It was that quest for a happiness that did not disappear. That's that what yeah what led um, <laughs> uh, yeah Mun Buridato to become yeah Mung Pu Man, the grandfather of the Thai forest tradition, uh, without whom none of us would be here. And so, yeah, I'll offer these words for your reflection tonight. 